So it's quite, a, it's quite a big chunk of text, but it's a really helpful passage because it, it tells us itself exactly what we're looking at. You know, if you're trying to find a single book in a library, that would be quite a hard task. But each shelf in a library usually has little signs telling you what you're looking at. And in the same way, this passage has got two bookends, the first couple of verses and then the last verse that tell us exactly what's happening in the passage. And so verse 17 to 18, the enemies of the church want the mission of the church to be stopped. But, skip to the end, do that sneaky peek right at the end of the passage. Verse 42, the Lord of the church will make sure it continues. Apparently, members of the Peace Corps who were serving in the Amazon were told that if you're ever attacked by a python, this is helpful information if you live on the Isle of Wight, of course. I'm also not entirely convinced that this is true, but it was too good a a story to not use. Members of the Peace Corps serving in the Amazon were apparently told, if you're attacked by a python, lie flat on your back and allow the snake to swallow your foot. If you struggle, it will coil around you and suffocate you, but if you stay calm and allow him to swallow up to your knee, as its jaw distends, you'll be able to slip out your knife, stick it in the side of its head and kill it. How would you get on with that? Can you imagine the pressure building as it just works its way up? You know, is it quiet at the car? Is that the calf? Is that my knee? When do do you stop? When do you take out the knife? Pressure on the Christians is building in the book of Acts. In chapter 3, they met resistance from the Jewish rulers after Peter had healed a lame beggar. And then at the start of this chapter, they meet pressure from within the church when Ananias and Sapphira's sin gets the better of them. But now, the second half of chapter 5, the Sanhedrin are back, and verse 17, driven by jealousy, the main enemies from outside the church try again to bring it down. But the final verse reveals they're not going to succeed. Verse 42, they didn't cease. They didn't stop, not for one moment. They didn't cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. And so what we have in this passage is the most powerful men in Israel doing all they can to see the church ruined. God says no. And that's where our focus is going to be this morning because there are so many things that we could look at in this passage. We could focus on what the apostles do or what the Sanhedrin do, but our attention is going to be on five comforting things that God does in this text. The first one in verse 19 to 21 is God maintains his mission. Now the guaranteed way to kill a snake is to cut off the head. That'll do it. And that's exactly what the Sanhedrin try with the church. They think we'll take out the leaders We'll cut off the head. Those apostles, we'll imprison them. If they won't stop preaching, we'll lock them up. If they won't stop teaching about Jesus of their own choice, we'll take their choice away. But you and I know that the apostles aren't doing this out of their own choice. They're not the head of the church. It wasn't their initiative. It's not their idea. And in fact, they told the Jewish rulers that last time. that The high priest had told Peter, you've got to stop Preaching about Jesus, Peter replies, chapter 4, verse 19, We can't, because we are under a higher authority than you. God has told us to preach. 
And now God proves that Peter has got it absolutely right. Verse 19 to 21. That night, God sends an angel to open the prison door and tells the apostles, go preach. Now, before we go any further, grasp the, the, the simple and beautiful truth. God is devoted to his mission. And, and he won't let anything stop it. The most powerful men in Israel, the, the religious leaders of the nation, do everything in their power to, to stamp it out. They threaten his servants. They lock them up. God won't allow it. His mission is too important to him. In fact, it's so important, he will work a miracle and send an angel to ensure that his servants are able to keep on preaching. Now, that, that really opens a window for us and allows us to see deep into the heart of God. Because it shows us what he's most passionate about. There was a man at the, the Super Bowl, you know, the biggest American football game of the year. And he was surprised to see that one of the seats in front of him was, was vacant. And he knew how expensive the tickets were, how hard they were to get. He couldn't believe that somebody would have bought a ticket and not turned up. And so he tapped the lady next to it on the shoulder and said, excuse me, is nobody coming for that seat? And she said, oh, well, my husband should be there. We, we always come to the Super Bowl together, but, but he died. The man said, I'm, I'm so sorry. And he let her get on with watching the game. But his curiosity got the better of him again, and he said... But didn't any of your friends or family want to come and watch the game? And she said, you, you know, I, I thought they would. And I offered them the, offered them the ticket, but they all insisted on going to the funeral. <laughs> Many of us have interests and passions. And it doesn't matter whether it's football or martial arts, certain TV program, a new video game. That's our thing. And we won't allow anything to disturb that time. We'd be loathed for anything to interrupt the attention that we give to that. God won't allow anything to interrupt or stop his mission. Not the sin of his people, Ananias and Sapphira. Not the strength of his enemies, the Sanhedrin, not even the subtlety of Satan who's behind the scenes pulling all of the strings. Nothing will be permitted to stop God's mission. And that should make every one of us say, what a wonderful God we have. Because God's mission, this thing he's so dedicated to, is that we, who are deservedly on our way to hell, who are enemies of God because of our wicked hearts and godless thoughts. God's mission is that we should be rescued from our sin, saved from hell, and made right with Him. God's great mission that, that, he's, that He's so determined will succeed is to wrap up His enemies in arms of love. Now that can only happen when we hear the good news. And put our faith in Jesus. And so God is totally committed to making sure that the good news is preached. And the fire of his passion for people is going to consume anything that tries to get in the way of that. I wonder if you've ever paused to ask yourself the question. Why is it that there's a gospel church right here? Why is it that there's a Bible-believing, 
gospel-preaching church right here. When so many fade away or fizz out, and yet here there's one within walking distance of your house. Or within a short ride in the car. Why here? Well, it's because God loves you. And why has he brought you here this morning? Even though you didn't really want to come. It's because he loves you. Why has he surrounded you with people who keep telling you about Jesus? It's because he loves you. Why has he protected you the way he has? Stopped you from making decisions that would have driven you further from it. Why has he preserved your life until now? You've had some close calls, right? On these narrow, windy island roads. Some near misses. Why has God saved you until now? Because he loves you. Why has he given you a home and a TV and internet access so you can watch online? What's being said? It's because he loves you. And he wants you to hear this morning about Jesus and how he died for you. And how he rose from the dead so that you can be free from your sin and made right with God forever. And if you're a Christian, what does he keep bringing you? Because he wants you to feed on his word. And to know more of the power of Christ in your life. And to know the closeness of fellowship. With him, the king of the cosmos. And he wants you to experience the sweetness of communion with him. Because he loves you. God is passionate to see Jesus' kingdom grow. Through the saving of sinners and the strengthening of his saints. The second thing we see God doing here in verse 22 to 28. Is that God embarrasses. His enemies. Maybe you know what I'm talking about when I say instant karma videos. This is no uh, endorsement of karma. But you'll have seen those little videos, often clips on Facebook or YouTube of, of, you know, a boy racer in his car at the lights, pulls up and is revving his engine. And then the lights turn green and he's left his handbrake on as he tries to pull away and doesn't go anywhere. Or there's a police car behind and the blue lights begin flashing. Those videos are funny. There's a humor in a, a proud person being brought low. Anybody who stands against God has a hugely inflated view of themselves. And, and anybody who thinks that they can defeat God has got no idea how small they are. And so the high priest, he goes to bed that night rubbing his hands. And maybe for the first time in a long time, he thinks he's going to sleep really well. He's smiling to himself because it's all over. This little Christian cult, this sect has been stamped out. It's done. The apostles are in prison. There's nothing to worry about anymore. He's got no idea there's an angel in his prison. And the guards look at the apostles as they're brought in that night. And they think, well, maybe that Peter, he looks a bit rough around the edges. Maybe he could handle himself. But the rest of these guys, they're not going to cause us any trouble. It's going to be a quiet night on duty tonight, lads. It's going to be so quiet. They're not going to hear a peep while their prisoners walk out from right under their noses. But you and I have read the passage, so we know what's going to happen. And so we can't help smiling when the Sanhedrin in verse 21 process in. Sorry, but yeah, verse 21. Now when the high priest came in and those who were with him, they called together the council. 
all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. And so the Sanhedrin come in and all the senate, we're told everybody's there, the whole procession is there. And then they pronounce the official order, bring us the prisoners. And the soldiers click their heels and they march off down to the prisoner and the jailers, the jailer salutes and he opens the door and he leads them in. And he's confident because the key is, is clicked, the door is locked. He opens the door, leads them in, they're gone. And everybody's left looking around wondering where they are. And so then the soldiers have to go back and the captain of the guard has to return to the council who were all there staring at the door, preparing their most intimidating glares. But the apostles don't come in, it's just the captain of the guard and he has to explain, verse 23, we found the prison all locked up. You notice that? There's no doubt God is embarrassing his enemies here because we often talk about the time that the angel unlocked the prison door and we can miss the fact that he locked it again. (laughs) The jailer had to go through that and the guards had to listen to the click of the door unlocking and be confident that everything was safe and secure. And they have to go back and say the door was locked, but we've got no idea where they are. And while everyone's bewildered, somebody comes in verse 25 and says, you know those lads you arrested yesterday? They're preaching in the temple again. And puzzled faces become stunned faces. And then the captain and the officers go to get them. But the crowd is hooked on Peter's sermon. And so the best that they can do today. Yesterday you could march up. You're under arrest. Come with us. The best they can do today because they're afraid of being stoned by the crowd. Is politely ask, would you come with us please? They won't arrest them again. And now the council that just a moment ago was ready to pronounce judgment. How dare you not do what we told you to do. Now verse 27 to 28 have to ask, why aren't you doing what we told you to do? It's a huge embarrassment for the high priest and his friends. And yet this is what will happen to every enemy of God. Think of Richard Dawkins, the father of modern atheism. Sits back in his intellectual confidence and says, there is no God. He won't say that when he meets God. He's going to look a fool. And the same will be true of everybody who puts their trust in Dawkins rather than Jesus. Because it doesn't matter if you're the high priest or just the soldiers following orders. It doesn't matter if you're the the one who's able to dream up the philosophical position that resists Jesus or just the one who subscribes to it. You make yourself an enemy of God. He will embarrass you. Because there is a day coming when all of us will meet God. And you'll see what a mistake you've made. The Bible says it will be a day where people will, will plead with mountains to fall on them and cover their shame. The third thing that God does in this passage is that he appeals to his opponents. Verse 29 through to 32. It's really important that we see the other side of this coin. God doesn't embarrass his enemies because he takes pleasure in destroying them. He does it because he desperately longs for them to change. We once went on a a school trip 
to a big water park. It was about the end of year, year eight, year nine, something like that. So I'd have been about a 13-year-old Jeff at the time. And we went to this big water park that we were all excited to go to because there were these big slides. And there was one in particular called the roller coaster, which went right around the top of the park. And you sat on a rubber ring and these pretty firm jets of water propelled you along as you went. Well, the first jet of water took my swimming shorts down to my knees. And the second jet of water took them off. And I spent the rest of that slide desperately trying to catch up with these shorts and pull them on again before I got to the bottom that took a photo of you as you came out. <laughs> Managed it just. I'm sure on a, on a database somewhere at Stoke-on-Trent Waterworld, there'll be a picture of 13-year-old Jeff coming down the slide just about getting these shorts up in time. That embarrassment was not comfortable. But I learned a lesson that day. Always tie up your swimming shorts. God embarrasses the high priest and his supporters. But he doesn't do it to just laugh at them. He's he's appealing to them. He's teaching them. He's showing them that this is his power. This is his work. This is his mission. And when they do their worst, they can't slow it down one bit. And so he's trying to wake the Sanhedrin up to their need of of him. And we know that by how he speaks so powerfully through Peter now in a five-point sermon. Follow it, verse 29, point one. Peter says, this is God's work. We're obeying him. Point two, verse 30, not just any God, Sanhedrin, rulers of our people. This is our God. The God of Israel did this. The God that you know, the God that you claim to worship. He did this. Verse 30 to 31, point three, you killed Jesus. But God raised him from the dead and exalted him to his right hand because he is the Messiah. He's the one our people have been looking for all these years. Point four, verse 31, that puts us in a terrible place. But God has promised to forgive your sins if you repent and put your trust in Jesus. Point five, verse 32, God has called us to tell everybody about this because we saw it with our own eyes. And if you don't believe, isn't it obvious that the Holy Spirit is at work? Because how else could we be preaching in the temple when you locked us in prison? The prison's secure. The door was locked. You're the leaders. You're the ones with the power to do that. But your power accomplished nothing. We're free. And then why are so many others putting their faith in Jesus too? If God's not in this. God's being so amazingly generous and loving towards his enemies here. Just think about it. Their plan. The plan of the Sanhedrin that day when they woke up was to put on trial and condemn God's messengers. Their plan was to crush the church, end its mission, suppress the good news, ensure the name of Jesus is ground into the mud and never heard of again. God's plan is that the gospel, the good news of Jesus should be preached to those very men. And yes, he embarrassed them. Yes, he showed them how weak and empty their power is. But not out of malice. He wants them to see that they need him. Now, God does exactly the same thing today. 
Maybe there are some of us here thinking, hey, I'm a good person, I'm living a good life, and I'm not hurting anybody. That's the pinnacle. If you do that in our world, in our culture, you've made it. That's the life that our world admires. A life that's good, respectable, not hurting anybody. If you're that kind of person, of course God is bound to welcome you into heaven when you die. The Bible says in God's eyes, all of your righteous deeds are like filthy rags. It says forget your worst moments. The, the thoughts and words and actions that that have been in your life this week, that if other people knew about them, it would make your blood run cold. Don't even think about those. The reality is that God is so holy and His standards are so high, even your best moments without Him are foul in His sight. And so here we are thinking our charity and our kindness and our religion is making God happy. And he says that's worse than worthless. It's so embarrassing. It, it hamstrings, it, it, it cuts the supports out of everything that so many people are building their life and their hope of heaven on. God's holiness is a crushing thing. That's why David in the Psalms cries out, who could possibly go up the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place? It made Peter say, get away from me, Jesus. Because I'm an unclean man. But God doesn't crush us to ruin us. And when God breaks us, it's because he's looking to make us, to mend us. When he empties us, it's because he longs to fill us up. When God brings you low with your sin, it's because he wants to lift you with that wonderful grace that the kids heard about this morning. Yes, God will show you the spiritual gutter that you are in. But he does it because he knows that until you see that, you'll never enter the palace that he's prepared for you. The fourth thing God does in verse 34 to 39 is that he preserves his people. Maybe you've seen the, the movie The Pianists about a, uh, a Polish uh, piano player who um, is a Jewish guy. And as the Nazis invade Poland, he's sent to the Warsaw Ghetto and he eventually escapes from there. And, and he survives in the ruins of a bombed out Warsaw. And the only way he's able to survive is because of the help of a German army officer who brings him food and supplies because he loves listening to this guy play the piano. In, in a similar way... God has power to bring help for his people from very unexpected places. And so here are the council desperate to kill the apostles. But Gamaliel, this highly respected council member, cautions them. He says, you be careful. Because if God is not in this, it will not last. But if God is in this and you stand against it, you won't last. You see, God can rescue his people by the power of an angel. And he can just as easily rescue his people through the wisdom of their enemies. But never doubt. The mission of God and the life of each of his people, it's in God's hands. Jesus said nobody could take his life from him. And if you're in Christ, the same is exactly true of you. 
So your job's not to worry what people will say or do or fear this. There's no way out of a situation. Our job's to be faithful. Our lives are at God's disposal. We will only ever die on Jesus' time. Nobody messes with his watch. Fifth and final thing that God does in this passage in verse 40 to 41 is that he doesn't pamper his people. And and this might seem quite a defeatist way to end what's otherwise a a really encouraging and wonderful passage because we, we get through all of this and the apostles have been released from prison and they've escaped the judgment of the Sanhedrin and the gospel has been preached. And they're, not, they're going to get away with their lives. And then they get beaten. And publicly humiliated. And it seems such a defeatist way to end. And we ask the question, why does God allow the apostles to be beaten? And then verse 41, how is it that they can go home rejoicing that that's just happened to them, that they should be counted worthy to suffer dishonor for Jesus? Well, there's, there's so much that could be said about that. And it would be worth taking a series of sermons to think it through. Let me just say one thing for now. There's one thing that, that um, happened just a little bit over a year ago now that, that shed a little bit of light on how we could understand this and it helped me understand a little bit more. Because if we ask the question, how does, how does the beating of the apostles and the way they respond, how does that help me if I, in light of seeing how important God's mission is to him, am ready to step out for Jesus, and then I meet persecution, or I meet mockery, embarrassment, or, or loss of job, or loss of friends, or loss of reputation. As I say, something happened last year. Our experience of COVID in New Zealand was very different to what you went through here. The borders were locked down very early on, and so we missed the worst of the, the virus. Only one person from our little congregation died, but it was a massive shock for us because he was 21 and he was fit and healthy. Now, at the funeral, the young man's sister said something. She said she was so grateful that Peregrine, that was his name, that Peregrine would never have to carry the grief of losing a sibling. You'd never know that. And then she said it would be an honor for her to carry that grief for her brother. She's asking a question there. Why does she experience that grief in her life? Because I was grieved over Peregrine's death. A congregation was grieved over Peregrine's death. But our grief was very different from hers. Why does she have that more intense pain because it was her brother her grief is a sister's grief and so she's saying it's my honor to carry that pain because I'm the only person in all the world who will carry it there's one reason the apostles are beaten and treated shamefully they belong to Jesus one reason that they face the, the, the ignominy of public abuse. Because they have, and they have been faithful to Jesus. And so their pain is a saved person's pain. And so every purple bruise and every aching joint and every flash of embarrassment as they think about all these people gathered around watching while they're 
so shamefully treated. All of it screams out. This is for Christ. You think about what kind of a man Peter was. Peter had scars, right? He was a tough guy. He was a fisherman. Fishermen have scars. But more than that, he was a bit of a hothead. And so maybe amongst the scars, he also had some missing teeth from disagreements that got out of hand and sore knuckles. None of those wounds were precious to him. But these ones are medals on his chest. Because he didn't have a single one of them for, for being proud or selfish or angry. He had them because he belonged to Jesus and he'd been faithful to Jesus. And because he'd been given grace to love Jesus. And that for him was worth rejoicing in. Now everybody here will be carrying different kinds of scars for different kind of things. Some of them for good reasons. Some because of our own stupidity. Are you carrying scars for Jesus? And if not, is it because you're not stepping out for him? Not standing up and being counted for him? You know, the, the Irish rugby team recently went on tour in New Zealand and for the first time they won their, their tour. And at the end of the tour, the New Zealand TV was interviewing this uh, Irish captain. And, and he's got, they, they don't call them cauliflower ears in New Zealand, but, but you know what I'm talking about, right? Cauliflower ears. When you've play, been playing rugby too long and your, plates are, your, your ears are like ruined plates sticking out on the side of your head. These massive swollen, sore ears. And this huge man with these big, sore ears is bawling his eyes out. You know, you don't get ears like that for being a spectator. You get them for being on the pitch. It's a player's pain, a player's scar. You know what else you get for being on the pitch? Trophy. Glory. The joy that makes a, a grown man made of muscles cry his eyes out. And yet even the joy of beating the All Blacks on the home turf is nothing compared to the joy set before those who faithfully follow Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who is dedicated, devoted to your mission. And that mission is, there's no cause like it. That you should be so invested in seeing sinners saved from our sin and from our shame and rescued from hell. Oh, what a wonderful God you are. Oh, help each one of us to get on board with your mission. And we pray even when that means cost. And when. Injury. Comes our way. Because of faithfulness to you. We, we save us from, from fear of that. Help us not to count the cost. Help us not to be ashamed of wearing scars. For you. Help us to rejoice. In any suffering that comes. Because of faithfulness to you. Give us a heart for mission, even like your own heart. 
We have friends and family members who, who don't know you. It's such a comfort to know that you're so dedicated. So hungry for their salvation. Oh, help us to be hungry for it too. Help us to speak to them. To witness to them. To develop lives that demonstrate there's nothing more important than knowing you. We pray it for your glory in your name.